You're listening to the Mission Church Podcast. Each message comes from our Sunday morning gatherings where we worship in community, study God's Word, and grow in our faith together to the glory of Jesus Christ. The Mission Church is committed to helping each person belong and believe and to equip them to embrace the call of God upon their life. We pray these messages will build your faith and encourage you today. Well, how many of you are ready for a Bible study this morning? All right. Uh, If you need a Bible, go ahead and raise your hand. We have ushers who are coming by to pass those out. In case you are wondering, we have this awesome cleaning team who's just been really thoughtful and literally going around with uh, disinfectant, disinfecting everything. How many of you got disinfected coming in the door? That's good. Hopefully none of you. Uh, But they do disinfect the Bibles in between services. So I'm trying to be diligent with how we steward things, but so glad that we get to worship together. Why don't I pray and then we'll get into God's word this morning. Father in heaven, it truly is a joy to meet as your people. Lord, it's a gift to be able to open your word freely. And Lord, we know it's in your will to ask that your spirit would give us ears to hear and eyes to see what you would speak to us this morning. We understand that we are fallen, imperfect people. You are a perfect and majestic God, and it brings you good pleasure to have relationship with us, to speak to our hearts and to our minds, to affirm what is good and right and lovely and true, and to warn us and to guide us and to discipline in your love, to stay away from what is harmful. So, Lord, may we be filled with your spirit this morning. We may, may we not simply be hearers of the word, but doers of the word as well. In all that you've called us to throughout the week. So, Lord, we thank you for this time. And we give it to you in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. amen. Uh, well, if you have your Bibles, open to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. Matthew is the first book in the New Testament. So about two-thirds of the way, a little more uh, in the Bible. If you are new to the Bible and you have no idea where to go, that's okay, because this book also comes with a table of contents, and you can look up the Gospel of Matthew, as it's the first book in the New Testament. Uh, If you're new, we have been going through what's known as the Sermon on the Mount, and the Sermon on the Mount is the greatest sermon ever given, because who is it by? Jesus. Myself, Pastor Dave, anyone else could never give a sermon as profound as as Jesus. And he talks in the context of what he wants his disciples to know about the heart of God. And here's how Jesus disseminates or gives that sermon. He's not simply talking to a scribe who writes it down and then it gets passed out through pamphlets. Instead, Jesus sits down with his disciples and a large crowd around him and he teaches people in relationship. It's so important for us to understand the Sermon on the Mount within the context of relationship, because if we don't, it just ends up being a bunch of things you should do and things you shouldn't do. And yet what we love about this is Jesus is teaching in such a way that he lives this out with his disciples. Uh, I can remember a time in my life, I was about six or seven years old, and my family and extended family would always go stay in the Redwoods. And we would stay on this river, and I love to fish. 
And I was convinced that there was this one fishing spot where if we could just get to it, I would catch all the big fish. The only problem was this year, the river had swollen because of all the rains during the, during the winter season, and it was covered in water. And to get to it, I would have to swim across. Well, at six years old, I wasn't that great of a swimmer, and I had my tackle box, and I had my fishing pole, and I looked at my dad, and I said, we've got to get to over there. My dad was like, okay, let's do it. And he put me on his back and swam me across the river to that one spot. And guess what I caught? Absolutely nothing. (laughs) Maybe I didn't catch anything because the part of the story I was supposed to remember was the part of the story that I remembered. My dad didn't say, okay, well, if you want to do it, go ahead. There it is. You go. Instead, he got in the river with me, put me on his back, and went with me to the spot. That's what Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount. He's not simply telling his disciples, hey, uh, yeah, the kingdom of God's over there. Good luck. I hope you make it. Go get him, tiger. No, he says, I'll walk with you. I'll swim with you. I'll go with you. Now hear the heart of God. Live it out. Don't just know it in your minds. Live it out. If you've been with us the last couple of weeks, uh, Pastor Dave covered four harmful behaviors that affect our life. And we looked at Matthew chapter 6, where it talks about storing up treasures in heaven instead of earthly treasures for our pleasure here on earth. Because where our heart is, is where our treasure is also found. We also talked about how worry greatly impacts our life negatively, right? So uh, when we worry, we often set our eyes on the things we don't have instead of the things that we have been given and gifted. The third thing that we looked at was a critical spirit. How easy it is for me, for us, to have a critical spirit toward others, and yet Jesus encourages us, don't have a critical spirit. Have a spirit that loves and is compassionate toward others. That doesn't mean there can't be discipline. That doesn't mean that there's not accountability. But one that sees each other as Christ sees us, people in need of a Savior, not lost causes. And then finally, he talked about not giving what is holy to people who aren't ready to understand that. A great example of that might be... uh, Facebook or Instagram or just social media in general. Um, We are living in a society where no matter what you post, what's going to (laughs) happen? You get comments. And how many of you read those comments? And how many of you get upset by those comments? Probably a lot of us. And when Jesus is saying, hey, don't give what is holy to the dogs or don't give what is holy to people who don't know what you're saying simply means There is a time and a place in which we are to minister to others who are actually seeking Jesus, not simply just throwing stuff out into the wind and then getting offended when it doesn't come back. Because here's what we know about the gospel. The gospel is the good news of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, and it is offensive. The gospel is offensive because it demands that there is only one king one God, and one way to eternal life. And all other roads fall short. That's an offensive message. 
And it's through relationship with others that we can talk about hard things with other people. And so Jesus is going to continue taking us from these harmful behaviors that he's told us not to do into five practical ways to walk with Jesus. Five practical ways to walk with him. This is not separate from the other parts of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus continues to build upon this message. He was teaching this all at one time. There were no breaks. And so for us today, we begin in verse 7, but Jesus is coming to the end of this Sermon on the Mount. And he says this in Matthew chapter 7, verse 7. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. Primarily, what is Jesus talking about here? When he says, ask and you will receive, seek and you will find, knock and it will be opened. When do we ask? When do we seek? And when do we knock? In what? In prayer. Jesus is talking to us specifically about our prayer life. Now, this isn't the first time Jesus has talked about prayer within this sermon. If we go back to Matthew chapter 6, if you remember, Jesus taught his disciples how to pray. What is that prayer called? The Lord's Prayer, right? Um, just by a show of hands, how many of you have memorized the Lord's Prayer? That's, that's a majority of you. And here's what's neat about the Lord's Prayer is Jesus is teaching his disciples how to pray Not exactly what to pray. And here's the difference. If it was simply what to pray, then all we would do is repeat the Lord's Prayer over and over again. And that's not what Jesus is asking of us. He's teaching his disciples how to pray so that as we look at the Lord's Prayer, it provides a foundational framework for us to go, oh, I need to spend time praising God because holy is his name. And throughout the prayer, we go from different sections of praising God confession of sin, making sure we're forgiving others, bringing our needs before the Lord. And here Jesus says, ask and you will receive, seek and you will find, knock and the door will be open to you. Jesus could have just ended at ask and you will receive. Why does he list three different ways for us to pray? What does he want us doing constantly? He wants us praying. He wants us persistent. He wants us pursuing him in prayer, specifically his will in prayer. If you turn back to Matthew chapter 6, look at verse 10. Jesus teaches his disciples by saying, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Whose kingdom? Whose will? His will, the same will that's done in heaven, meaning everything God wants done is accomplished in heaven. And yet here on earth, there is a time in which people are still making their own decisions. And God's will is not completely done on earth yet until his son returns. And so we see that Jesus is encouraging his disciples, ask, seek, and knock. Because when you ask, what's the promise from Jesus? You will what? And when you seek, you will, and when you knock, it will be open to you. Now, how many of you have ever prayed for something and it didn't happen? 
Just a few of you? Yeah, yeah, me too. Well, wait a minute, Jesus, you just said, if I ask, if I seek, if I knock, I'm going to receive, I'm going to find, and it's going to be open to me. So what is the context of what Jesus is talking about? Because this is a promise from Jesus. He says that he will give you what you ask for when you ask for what is in his what? It's in his will. What is in his will. And this is important. James chapter 4 verse 3 says this, and even when you ask, you don't get it because all your motives are wrong. You only, what, you only want what will give you pleasure. Um, how many of you have ever prayed for something that you just flat out wanted? Yeah, me, me too. Um, didn't seek the Lord. It was totally for my own flesh. I just wanted that thing or that relationship or whatever it was. And it's easy for us as Christians, especially if you've grown up in church, that's our default. Well, if I want it, I just need to start praying for it. And oftentimes there's a lack of discernment. And what Jesus is calling his disciples to do is to take into consideration what he's already taught about prayer. And then say, listen, when you pray within the will of God, he will never tell you no. Here's an example. Let's say you've got a coworker, and that coworker is driving you crazy. As a matter of fact, you can't stand that coworker, and by divine holiness, God has now partnered you with that coworker to do a project. If you come to God and you go, "Oh God, just get this person out of my life." Is that within God's will? Some of you are like, "No, it really is." I'm telling you. Probably not. But if you come before the Lord and you go, Lord, I need to grow in my patience with this person. Is that something that God will answer? You bet it will be. Because this is the nature of God's character. He is patient. He is slow to anger. And he wants to liberally and abundantly pour out patience on us. And oftentimes, in order to get us patient, he puts us in situations where what? We need it. Patience. Dangerous thing to ask for, and yet something that is within God's will. Fathers, if you desire a deeper relationship with your children, and you come before the Lord and you say, Lord, I know that I need to grow in my walk with you in order to grow with my children. Will you help me know you more? What is Jesus going to do with that prayer? He's going to answer that prayer. That's within his will. When we are praying within his will, he answers. Jesus prays in the Garden of Gethsemane, Matthew chapter 26, 39, 42, and 44. Three times he comes before his heavenly father. He's about to be betrayed and then put on trial and then crucified and abandoned And rejected by his own people. And he comes before the father and he says, God, if there's any other way, let this cup of suffering pass. But not my will be done. Your will be done. Did God the father answer that prayer? He did. And we are the recipients of the goodness of that answer. Thank goodness that God the father didn't say, yeah, We'll skip this part. 
That would not have gone well for us. Jesus suffered and died so that we could live. Revelation chapter 3.20. We just covered this in our Revelation study on Tuesday night last week. Jesus is writing to the church in Laodicea that has largely put him outside of their hearts. They're going through the religious motions, but they don't have a relationship with Jesus. And Jesus says this to the church. Look, I stand at the door and knock. If you hear my voice and open the door, I will come in and we will share a meal together as friends. The creator of the universe, the all-powerful and almighty God, capable of doing anything, gently stands at the door of our hearts and knocks and asks to come in. And if we open that door, what's it say? He will come in and dine or sit with us for a meal just as a friend sits with a friend. When we are within God's will, when we are praying according to his promises and his word, he will always answer. Look at the example he gives. Jesus loves the opportunity to be practical. Verse 9, he says, What man or what dad is there among you who, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? So dads, if your little one comes to you and says, Dad, I'm hungry. I want a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. How many of you dads have like thrown your kid a rock and been like, hey, man doesn't live on bread alone. Chew on this. <laughs> Hopefully nobody. If your little one is hungry and they come to you, what do you do? <laughs> Some of you are like, we tell them to wait till dinner. But you still feed them. You still feed them. Now, this is such an intentional example Jesus uses because it's practical and it relates to people who are listening. It relates to us. But if you go back to the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus teaches, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Because God will give to them what they are hungry and thirsty for. And he gives it to them through himself. To have more of him. To have understanding of who he is as savior and king of our lives. Jesus says, which one of you dads, when your kid asks for some fish, you give them a snake? Well, dads, when your kids want to go to that party at that place that you know is not a good idea, what do you say? Like three of you said no. That's it. The mother said no, okay. <laughs> Come on, dad, step up. You be the ones to talk to your kids about this stuff. We sometimes tell our children no because what they're asking for is dangerous. It's not good for them. And like a good father, like our father in heaven, he gives good gifts to those who ask for good things that come from his will. We are to do the same as human fathers. Notice this in verse 11. If you then, meaning you men, you dads, being evil, I hope that encourages you, know how to give you good gifts to your children, how much more will your father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Jesus says, listen, you are a sinful people, broken and marred by 
the sin that entered the world through Adam and Eve, and yet even you know how to give good gifts to your children. Even you know that. How much better is your Father in heaven, who has no darkness in him with all, who has never sinned? How much more can you trust him to give you good things when you ask for them within his will? And so the question is, specifically, what are the good things that we're supposed to ask for? How do we know when we are in God's will? Well, Luke chapter 11, verse 13 The Gospel of Luke is talking about the same Sermon on the Mount, and Luke records it this way. He says, so if you sinful people know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? What is it that God wants to give us that is good? What's the Holy Spirit? Well, what in the world is the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit is God dwelling in us. Jesus is crucified, buried, and then resurrected from the dead. He spends 40 days on earth appearing to his disciples and others, and then he ascends into heaven, and he sends forth who? The Holy Spirit. God in us. The one who speaks to our hearts and minds And gives us wisdom and discernment of what is in God's will. And to have that understanding and discernment requires the gift of the Holy Spirit. If you're taking notes this morning, I want you to write this down. Praying God's will results in receiving good gifts. Praying God's will results in receiving good gifts. When we pray the will of God, we are simply praying back to him what he has already promised to give us. His character. His compassion. His love for us and for others. If we find ourselves praying selfish prayers, which I'm sure we all have in our lifetime, it is the Holy Spirit that convicts us that this is not the will of God. And it should transform our prayer life. Because there are things sometimes that we don't want to go through. And that's understandable. And yet sometimes maybe instead of our prayer being, God help this not to happen, help this not to happen, help this not to happen. What if our prayers change to, Lord help me be obedient with whatever happens. Is that a prayer he'll answer? You bet it is. When we pray in God's will, it results in receiving good gifts. Uh, I'm going to break this down a little bit further. We're going to go through uh, just five T's. And these T's aren't anything special. It could have been R's or S's. We could have come up with different words. But here's what I want you to remember from praying God's will results in receiving good gifts. Time. Time is so valuable in our relationship with Jesus. Time is so valuable in our marriages, in our relationship with our children, with others in our life. We can't possibly know someone without what? Spending time with them. And this is what God calls us to do through prayer. Prayer is spending time with God in relationship with Him. And I encourage you, To remember that when you are feeling distant 
or when you are feeling unheard or you are feeling unloved, you can always spend time with a God who holds time in his hand and is waiting for you at any moment. Never too busy to listen. Never too busy to speak back to you when you open the pages of his word. This is time well spent. And I encourage you fathers. A lot of us don't have a ton of time with our kids because of our schedules. And that's hard. I was going through, my wife and I were just talking about the 11 years of marriage we've had. And I've been a surf camp instructor, an insurance agent, an aerospace financial analyst, uh, a sports anchor, a public relations person for the San Diego Chargers, and a pastor. Oh, and a teacher. And in all those different seasons, there was always more time or less time to spend with my family. And you know what? As a pastor, this is the least amount of time that I get to spend with my kids. I've never had so little time. And yet because of the time that I get to spend with Jesus, my time with my kids is way more intentional than it was five years ago. So that when I'm with them, oh, it matters. That time matters. And I want to encourage you dads, when you spend time with God in prayer, it will overflow and fall into the relationship with your kids. And even if you only have small amounts of time, It will be double as impactful. Jesus continues in verse 12 and says, Therefore, this is a summary of verses 1 all the way through 11 in chapter 7. Therefore, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and prophets. Not to judge others, to have a soft and compassionate spirit, Not to give what is holy to what is unholy and then to ask in prayer, to seek in prayer, to knock in prayer. The summary of that is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love others as yourself. This is the Old Testament summarized in the heart of God. Jesus continues in verse 13. He says, enter by the narrow gate for wide is the gate and broad is the way That leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it. Because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life. And there are few who find it. Jesus isn't, again, just changing subjects. What he's doing is he's flowing into the next one. He's just talked about prayer. He's just talked about how God wants to give us his spirit. So that we can understand what it is to be in his will. Because when we are in his will, we enter through what? The narrow gate. Well, what in the world is the narrow gate? What is he talking about? John chapter 10, verse 9, Jesus says this. Yes, I am the gate. Those who come in through me will be saved. They will come and go freely and will find good pastures. Who is the narrow gate? It's Jesus. It's Jesus. And what Jesus is describing is, hey, there's a narrow gate and then there are broad highways. And the broad highways lead to where? Destruction. Destruction. And the narrow gate leads to where? Eternal life. Now, what does this look like in our culture and in our context? 
Well, there are a lot of different groups or there are a lot of different candidates running for a lot of different positions that are advocating that their way is the best way. If you do it this way, then we'll accomplish what we need to. No, 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 no. If you do it this way, then we'll accomplish what we need to. And there are some good things within those different groups or within those different candidates or within different organizations. But there is only one gate that leads to eternal life. And that's through the person of Jesus Christ. So I was thinking about this. I was thinking about how Jesus responds to his disciples when he's telling them that he has to die and that he has to go be with his father. And he tells his disciples, he goes, hey, you know where I'm going. And it wouldn't be so. I wouldn't tell you this if you didn't know that my father was preparing a place for you. You know the way. And Thomas, one of his disciples goes, Lord, we don't know where you're going and we don't know the way. And Jesus says this. I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. I'd mentioned earlier in the message, the gospel is offensive. It's offensive because it tells other religions, you are not the way to eternal life. The gospel is offensive because it tells movements that are seeking to change society, and it says, you are not the way to eternal life. And here's the reality of who Jesus is as the narrow gate. We are in a society that desires justice, and rightfully so. Where will that be found? This isn't a trick question. It's found in Jesus. We are in a society that is desperate for peace. Where will it be found? It's in Jesus. We're in a society desperate for people to treat them the way that Jesus describes in verse 12. Do unto others as you would want done to you. Where does that kind of heart come from? It comes from Jesus. There is no man-made institution, organization, or movement that can possibly answer the questions that people are screaming for and dying for right now. There just isn't another one. This is the only way. And some of the things that come up when we think of the Broadway, um, this may be uh, an example you can understand or maybe might be offensive to you, but let's think about the American dream for a second. As parents, you work hard so you can do what? (laughs) Someone's like, play, like that. So you can make a better life for who? For your kids. And here's what society sells us. Listen, you got to put that college account together so you can get your kids to college so they can get a good education and get a good job and meet that special someone and make sure that they get married and then have kids. Let's try and do it in that order. Married, then have kids. And then their life will be set and you'll be happy as a parent. Because you won't have anything to worry about. Oh, and by the way, this has to happen by the time your kid is 28 years old. This is an actual thing that the world pushes on Western society. Working with young adults here at the church, I can tell you there is real anxiety and pain from the pressure that our single young adults feel like, 
there must be something wrong with me. I don't understand why I don't, I'm not here in life or I'm not here in life. And let's just stop and think about, well, is this philosophy of life the narrow way, the narrow gate, or is it the broad way? In general, and just so you know, I'm a public school, university graduate person. But I've come to recognize some things for my own children, in which, in general, you mean to tell me that as Christ followers, we're going to sacrifice and spend ridiculous amounts of money to send our children to incredibly illiberal institutions where God does not even exist and is an enemy so that we can brainwash them, then send them out into the world to be better human beings. Seriously? That doesn't make any sense. Now, I'm not against education. And we have the privilege in this country for many of us to receive it. But it is the underlying foundation of what we're telling our kids. And then on Sundays, we're like, hey, but have a walk with Jesus. Love Jesus. But go get poured into by people who oppose Jesus six days a week. That doesn't make any sense. That's not discipleship. That's feeding lambs to wolves. This is the way, the broad way that leads to destruction. Jesus is challenging his disciples. Hey, I know that there will be times where the path looks easy. Have discernment. Remember, you have my spirit. Have discernment about, is this the narrow gate? Is this the way to eternal life? Is this the path that God is calling me to specifically? In your notes, you can write down, Jesus is the only entrance into eternal life. Jesus is the only entrance into eternal life. And the second T for you is trust. Trust. It does take a tremendous amount of faith and trust to walk in the narrow gate when there are many ways that are broad and yet lead to destruction. This is why the gospel is hard for people to receive. Because it's not easy to be told the way you're doing it is wrong. It's going to lead ultimately to your spiritual death. We don't like to offend. And we don't like to be called judgmental or hypocrites or critical. And yet true love is what Jesus is doing with his disciples. This is the way. And there is no other. By the way, Jesus is walking with his disciples in this, right? He's not higher up above them, pointing down at them mad. Instead, he's saying, I'll walk with you through this. I'll show you. I'll live it out so that then you can model your life after me. And that's what Christ did. No one endured more suffering than Jesus. No one experienced aloneness as much as Jesus no one went against societal norms as much as Jesus. As a 30-year-old Hebrew man, there was tremendous pressures on him to be married, on him to be in a certain season of life. And instead, he was a homeless traveler preaching like an Old Testament prophet. He understood what it was to walk a path of obedience. Jesus takes us from the narrow way, the gate that he is to eternal life, and he gives us a warning. He says in verse 15, beware of false prophets. You could insert for that word prophets, pastors, 
or teachers or influencers. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? How many of you have gathered figs lately? But how many of you know enough that figs don't come off of thorn bushes? Most of us, right? Jesus begins to emphasize what he calls fruit. Notice in verse 17, he says, Even so, every good tree bears what? And every bad tree bears? A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits, you will know them. Jesus is specifically telling his disciples, telling us, be careful who you listen to. Be careful who you are influenced by. Be careful who you follow. Now, Jesus mentions that there are wolves in sheep's clothing. What does that mean? That just simply means there are deceivers. There are people who act a certain way, but they really aren't the person that they pretend to be. Um, if you see a wolf, how many of you would know what a wolf looked like right away? Yeah, and what would you do if it was like within a short proximity of you? <laughs> Some of you are like, I wouldn't get out of my car because that's where I am. I'm inside the car safe. When we see a wolf, we know what a wolf looks like. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's saying, hey, be careful of those smooth-tongued people. Could be on talk shows, could be at churches, could be in your classrooms. Be careful, they may be a wolf in sheep's clothing. And here's how you will know. You will know them by their what? By their fruits. By their fruits. Well, since we're talking about five practical ways to walk with Jesus, this is the most practical example that I could come up with. I don't know if it's good or not, but here we go. Uh, in general... What Jesus is talking about with these false prophets is normally much of what they say is true, which is why people get deceived. So, hey, welcome to the Mission Church. We're glad you're here. True? You hope so. We're glad you're here. We're so glad you're here that if you visit the welcome table in the courtyard, we've got a Starbucks gift card for you. We'd love for you to write your name down and someone will give you a call this week so that we can just start the conversation of getting to know you. True? True. Hey, Mission Church. How long have you been coming? Wow, six weeks. That's great. What do you do? Well, you're a lawyer. Huh. Not many of you here. That's good. Wow, lawyer, huh? So God's really blessed you financially. Well, here at the Mission Church, we, uh, we tithe double. As a matter of fact, some even called the triple tithe. True or not true? Not true. What deceivers will do is tell you what you want to hear and bring you in. But at the root, when you get to the foundation of who they are or what they're about, you will find that it is nothing more and earthly treasures, and pursuit of power and self-glory. Not the glory of Christ, but the glory of self. 
elevating you to think more highly of yourselves. Hey, you're struggling with self-esteem. Let me build you up. You're amazing. You have the power to heal yourself. Garbage! If we did, we wouldn't need a Savior. Jesus says, you will know them by their fruits. Investigate the outcome of their lives. The moment you see Pastor Dave and I drive up in a Bentley, go somewhere else, please. Seriously. You should be able to look at our marriages. You should be able to look at our children. And remember, we are imperfect men, but there should be fruit there. We should be investigated as teachers, just like you should investigate those that are speaking into your life. It's important to see fruit. But wait a minute. Jesus just said, don't judge. Within God's house, we are called to hold one another accountable, aren't we? Because that's what Jesus does for us. In love, he calls us to account and encourage us to grow. Galatians chapter 5, verse 22 and 23. Many of you know it already. What is the fruit that we should be able to see from the people speaking into our life? It is simply the character of Jesus. It's love. It's joy. It's peace. It's long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Is this the character of the people speaking into your life that you are following or modeling your life after? Because if it's not, then it's not from Christ. Investigate outcomes, not outward appearances. Investigate outcomes, not outward appearances. The third T here is test. We are not to test God, but it is okay to test the people who are influencing our life. To look deeply into the fruit that they're bearing. Not just what they portray on the outside, but what's really going on. Get to know people. Sit down with them. Better understand where have they been and where are they going and what is their purpose for you in following them. Still with me this morning? A little bit? All right, we got, got two more. Jesus moves us from warning us about false prophets and looking at the fruit of their life to verses 21 through 23 that says this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the what? The will of my Father in heaven. There it is again, God's will. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? Cast out demons in your name and done many wonders in your name? And then Jesus says, I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness or sinfulness. Oh, this is an intense couple of verses right here. We've just moved from false teachers, those who are deceiving others, those who claim the name of Christ, to Jesus saying, hey, there are those who know my name. They say it, but they haven't lived the life in me. And in the end, I'll tell them, I never knew you. Well, what does this look like? Well, again, we start in God's house. 
There are plenty of people in any church who've been sitting here for years or sometimes even decades. And they know the stories. They know the songs. They know the name of Jesus. But their life has not been in subjection to him. They've lived for themselves. We see this again in Matthew chapter 6. Jesus teaches his disciples about giving, about prayer, and about fasting. And in those three things, in Matthew 6, 1 through 18, he says this. Don't be like the hypocrites who give so that people will go, Oh, you're so amazing. What a generous person you are. No, no, no. Do it in secret. To where your right hand barely knows what your left hand is doing. Do it for the glory of God, not for yourself. Don't be like the hypocrites who pray where everyone can hear them and see them so people will think they're so holy and yet they don't actually live out the prayers that they're praying. Don't be like the hypocrites fasting and walking around like this. Oh, hey, I haven't had Taco Bell for two weeks. But I'm growing in my holiness. Or maybe this relates a little better. Hey, bro, you want to go get a drink tonight? Me and the guys are going out. We're going to have some fun. Oh, sorry, dude. I'm a Christian. I wish I could, but I can't. No, Jesus says when you fast, when you fast, when you haven't had food, even for days... Oh, is not fasting, feasting on God's word? Shouldn't you be filled with more life than less? Don't walk around feeling sorry for yourself, asking for the praise of man, for you will have your just reward. Instead, your Father who is in secret knows what you are doing, and that should be enough. Jesus is saying here is that there are some who call on the name of the Lord. Meaning, they simply know the name of Jesus. Do you believe in Jesus? Yeah, I believe in Jesus. All right, well, there's a good aspect to that, right? Romans 10, verse 9 says this. But if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus Christ is Lord, you will be saved. Do we need to call on the name of Jesus? Absolutely. But if it's simply just a name, like... Hey, you know Brad? Oh, yeah, Brad Pitt. I know his name. I don't know him, but I know his name. We have no relationship with that person. We may know about him. We know, may know who he is. Shoot through Google. You could know everything about their life, but do you have relationship with that person? No. The name of Jesus is not simply a name like Bob or Susan. It is a title of his authority in our lives. When we say, Lord, Lord, it's not just a name. It's the position that we have under the position that he has as God and king. Notice what Jesus says. He says that there will be some who go, what do you mean you don't know us? We prophesied in your name. We cast out demons in your name. We did all these good works in your name. And Jesus goes, you did them for yourselves. You went through the motions. You simply showed up without actually thinking about what you were doing. And it was all for your own glory. I don't know you. Get away from me. You who practice evil. 
I was at the beach with my kids yesterday, and we went early in the morning. I wanted to do some surfing, and I have a nine-year-old, an eight-year-old, a six-year-old, and a four-year-old. And my three boys all put their wetsuits on and got their boards, and I looked at my daughter. I was like, do you want your wetsuit? And she was like, no, Dad, I don't need a wetsuit. Just charge right in the water. I was like, oh, it's amazing. And I was always there with them. Time was passing. And I can't tell you how many times they ran up to me and they gave me a big hug. They're like, thanks for taking us to the beach. And they would run back in the water. And every single time was just me getting to have more time and trust with my kids to where we know each other. I know when it's time to go home because their lips are blue and they're like this. And I ask them, are you cold? They're like, no. (laughs) But as their dad, I know them well enough of, all right, let's wrap you up in a towel. (laughs) It's, It's time to go home because we have a relationship together. There has been time and trust built. I have been tested and they are being tested by me. And we are now together in relationship. You're taking notes, write this down. We are known through a relationship with Jesus, not religion. We are known through a relationship with Jesus, not religion. Church is fantastic because church is you. It's not the building. It's not the service. It's you. It's the body together. But simply showing up and doing the right things That's not what Jesus was after. That's not the heart of the Sermon on the Mount. The heart of the Sermon on the Mount is the Beatitudes, right? Of blessed are the poor in spirit, those who know they need a Savior. They will inherit the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who mourn over their sin. People who are just going through the motions don't mourn over their sin. They simply go, well, I guess I'm forgiven, so that's good. Now, to mourn over our sin is to go, oh, I did it again, God. I'm so sorry so sorry that I waste your grace. Would you forgive me? Thank you for forgiving me. Lord, help me to not walk in that temptation. That's what a relationship is. It's not just knowing about someone. It's being known by the other person too. And that's what Jesus is after with us. The fourth T is together. Together. If you find yourself... In your walk with Jesus alone. Meaning you're just doing the things you've always done. And you've been taught to do. And it really doesn't impact your life that much. Then you're alone. And Jesus calls you to be in relationship with him together. To be known by him. Not just to simply know about who he is. So we come to the final one. Jesus ends the Sermon on the Mount with this. This is an accumulation of everything he's taught to this point. If we look back, we look at the Beatitudes, the heart of God. Not the Beactions, it's the attitude, the spirit that God gives us. He calls us to be salt and light. He tells us that Jesus is the fulfillment of all Old Testament prophecy. He tells us that murder or adultery isn't just simply the actions that you do, but also the thoughts that you think, rendering all of us sinful and in need of a Savior. He talks about marriage being sacred. He, t- he turns the world upside down by saying, love your enemies, don't hate them. Not this eye for an eye business. 
Love them. Pray for them. Pursue them. He warns us about prayer and giving and fasting for the wrong reasons. And he talks to us about harmful behaviors and it's gotten us to this point and this is what he chooses to leave us with. Verse 24. Therefore, meaning what has come from beforehand, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, what do you have to do? You do them, you live them out. I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house and it did not fall for it was founded on the rock. What's the rock? Yeah, it's faith in Christ. It's Jesus. Just like the narrow gate is Jesus, the foundation is Jesus Christ. How do we know this? The Apostle Paul affirms this in 1 Corinthians 3, 10 through 11. He says this. Why don't you read this with me, church family? Because of God's grace to me, I have laid the foundation like an expert builder. Now others are building on it. But whoever is building on this foundation must be very careful. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one we already have. Jesus Christ. It's the only foundation that will stand through the storms of life. And here's what I love about Jesus and how practical he is in giving his disciples a picture of this. He says, hey, if you live this out the way that I'm going to and the way that I'm calling you to follow me. At the end of your days, when you stand before me, you will be like a wise man who built his house upon the rock. And here's the promise. The rain will come, the floods will descend, and the winds will blow and beat on the house. This is true for everyone in life. We will all experience the rain, the floods, and the wind. It will happen. But those who have placed their foundation on Jesus Christ, that house will stand. It doesn't mean your life will be perfect. It doesn't mean you won't go through tremendous hardships. But it will mean that the foundation you have won't be shaken and you will enter into eternal life. That is for certain. But notice what Jesus does. He then goes on to verse 26. But everyone who hears of these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. Here's what is so concerning and important about what Jesus is ending with. Both men, what are they doing? Building a house. house. And from the outside, what does the house look like? The same. But it's not until the storm comes... And beats on that house. That we find out which one built on a solid foundation. And which one built on the sand. And this is why we are to test ourselves. What is the fruit of our life? Are we simply angry and bitter? Discouraged. And discouraging others all the time? Are we unhappy all the time? Do we have a problem with gratefulness and thankfulness? Look at the fruit. 
Where are you in your life with Christ? Build your life on the foundation of Jesus. Build your life on the foundation of Jesus. The fifth T is truth. Truth. Because he is the truth. Here are some basic truths that we are to hold on to when those storms come. God is good. How many of you know that? Raise your hands, please. How many of you feel like that all the time, that God is good? Some of you. Not all of us. There are times in our life where I know in my brain God is good, but I'm like, God, if you were good, why is this happening? Or there are times in my life where I'm like, God, you missed it. I, I knew the way, but you missed it. The way was supposed to lead to the NFL. The way was supposed to lead to more hair. You missed it. But when it comes down to it, when I look at those things, that foundation would be built on who? Myself. Because it would be about me. But when I look at Jesus, and I go, God, you can do anything you want with my life because you're good. And you can be trusted. 1 Peter 4, 12 and 13 says, Dear friends, don't be surprised at the fiery trials you are going through as if something strange were happening to you. Instead, be very glad for these trials make you partners with Christ in his suffering so that you will have the wonderful joy of seeing his glory when it is revealed to the whole world. This is another foundational truth. Hey, when life is hard, count it joy. Not the thing that's actually happening to you, but the opportunity to suffer as Jesus suffered because it affirms, hey, as you walk with me, this speaks of the glory that you will receive when I return. It's an encouragement and an affirmation, even in the midst of difficult things. So the five T's this morning. Time. Spend time in prayer. Spend time reading God's word. This will overflow into your life. It truly will. And yet it's what we neglect the most. We have unlimited access to the creator of the universe, and yet we often spend the least amount of time with him and the least amount of time hearing from him because of the distractions of our schedules. Trust. Trust that he is the way, the truth, and the life. Test. Test the fruits in your life. Are you walking with Christ? Is it evident? Can others see it? And then together. Do you actually have a relationship with Jesus? Not just that you know him, but that he knows you. And that you feel that way. That you live that way. That he knows what you need before you even need it. And then finally, truth. Build your foundation on Jesus. Cling to the truths of his word. And what is good and right and lovely and pure. Matthew finishes Jesus' Sermon on the Mount with this comment. Verse 28. And so it was when Jesus had ended these sayings that the people were astonished at his teaching. I bet they were. They'd never heard these. Love your enemies. What? For he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. You see, his pastors... Um, 
we stand up here just as we should. And we say, Jesus says, or the Bible says. But Jesus came with authority and said, I say to you. He spoke not as one just simply quoting other rabbis. But he spoke as one with authority and it astonished the people. They had never heard something like this. They'd never heard a message that pierced their hearts so much. And we are to remain astonished at God's word. The things that Jesus continues to teach us through the Bible are counter to what we receive on a daily basis. And it should astonish us that such sinful creatures who have failed so many times are so passionately pursued and loved by a Savior who came and died and rose again so that we could have new life and not be punished for the sins that we've committed. That should astonish us every time we think about that. Fathers, everyone in here, not all of you have had the greatest example through an earthly father. That's the beauty of God's word. He is a good father whose character never changes and who sent his son to be the sacrifice for our sins so we could actually live out what Jesus is calling us to and it would have a transformational impact not only on our lives, but on the lives of others around us. Would you stand with me this morning as we finish in worship and prayer? Uh, dads, on your way out, we do have a gift for you. Uh, there's, uh, we got hamburger flippers. <laughs> Omaha steaks were a little expensive this year, so we went with hamburger flippers. Um, we'd love for you to take one on your way out. And it's just a small gift in all seriousness of your role is important. It's essential. Our kids need us as dads. We are a testimony of Christ and our Heavenly Father to our little ones. And that is why God is calling you today to be the father that he meant for you to be. Lord, that's not just a name, it's a title. It speaks of your great authority and the blessing it is to be adopted children in your kingdom. Thank you for sending your son Jesus because you are a good father who gives good gifts. And even though we didn't know we needed be forgiven of our sins you knew we did and you revealed that to us throughout the entirety of scripture failures over and over and over again things we couldn't fix feelings that we couldn't get rid of so you sent your son who willingly and obediently died on our behalf so that we could have new life, so that we could ask for good gifts and you would give us your Holy Spirit to live inside of us so that we may put on the character of Jesus. So Lord, bless your people. Bless them as they reflect on this Sermon on the Mount, the heart of God 
in how you invite us in to walk in these ways. Lord, would you do a mighty work in us? And would we be able to encourage and to preach to others around us through the way we live our lives? Would many come to Jesus Christ through this body of believers? Lord, thank you for the fathers in this room. Would you bless them? Would your face shine upon them? Would they follow you wholeheartedly? And in turn, would you pour yourself out in them in a way that their children cannot deny? Lord, thank you that this is within your will to ask for. In Jesus' name, amen. You may freely share this message with others as long as you don't charge for it. Support for these broadcasts comes from your generous donations that allow us to give away our materials for free. To participate with us, please visit our website at themissionchurch.net. God bless.